right. Thank you for joining the ESBC podcast, where the purpose of every single podcast is to make money. And every single podcast is a business meeting with a specific purpose in a specific outcome. So who the hell am I? Why should you listen to anything I have to say? I have an MBA. I have securities licenses. I have clients' net worth 50 million and above. My real claim to fame was that I took $6,000 in Pinellas Park, Florida, 1997, opened up a restaurant. Within those six years, George Steinbrenner came by, Aldo uh, Lahi came by, Malcolm Glacier, billionaires ate at my restaurant, sold it for 900,000, right? So what I do is we give you business and financial concepts, actionable information you can use today at the sound of our voices to make money. We use business and financial concepts to teach you how to wager on sports. So what have been the outcomes, the result? NFL, 64% first year, 64% second year. Last year, we were 59.875. We made over $100,000 each year with the information we give you. But it's information you could have taken and you made money yourself. And we continue doing that. Now, another business maxim we always have on the podcast is that if you are the toughest, smartest guy in the room, you are in the wrong room. <laughs> and we really hit it out of the park today. We have a very, very, very special guest. We're going to learn a lot from. Got a good vibe from him right away. He's willing to share. And he's got great things going on. And man, the United States of America, $137 trillion market. There's money for everyone. So we're overjoyed to have Tom Getty with us today. Hey, Tom, thank you for, for sharing and uh, uh, being generous with your time with us. Great to join you, Josh. This is a, now you got me all soaked up to go go get that dough. Yeah, right on. That's what we're here. Motivational <laughs> Monday, too. We're going to throw that in there a little bit and we'll get it all over, all over Twitter. But you've had a fascinating life, right? And like I shared, you know, George Steinbrenner coming to my restaurant, uh, you know, Malcolm Grayson, and they all, none of them greeted me. They all just started spitting out business advice. And George Steiner brought a business consultant to my restaurant to be paid for him to kind of teach me things. And uh, you grew up in Seattle. So we'll go through the trajectory of your whole life because you had a fascinating life. Who are your parents and how was your, your childhood like? And But first, your first thoughts uh, as we get into it. Uh, about everything? Wow, I mean, you're, you're, you're going way back. So yeah, I grew up born and raised in Seattle. Uh, South Seattle, kind of a hood kid. Yeah, uh, over by Franklin High School, and and you know, great upbringing. My uh, my dad is a a draftsman at Boeing. Spent forty two years, one job his entire life, all in Boeing military, working on um, missiles. Uh, wow. My mom was a nurse turned interior designer. Wow. Uh, I like to think I got a little sense of style from from uh, from her design background. Sure. Uh, went to O'Day High School, uh, which is a you know a real very well established right. um, all boys Catholic school. There, uh, you know, is, is is a sports factory as we've turned out. Nate Burleson, Paulo Bancaro, Demetrius Debose, uh, and just a bunch of NBA, NFL right. uh, uh, legendary dudes. Um, great experience there. I'm still on the board of O'Day High School, uh, and then I moved on. 
Yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. You're uh, on the board there. So it's interesting because with me, uh, I went to high school and I destroyed on the basketball court. Tom Carter, who graduated from Notre Dame, big Catholic school, degree in finance, played 10 years in the NFL. It's in the Lou Holtz book, Winning Every Day by Lou Holtz, because he won the, I think it was 94 national title in the early 90s with Tom Carter. 88. 88, yeah. Yep. And uh, Pat Terrell, too, was in our neighborhood, too, went to Notre Dame. He was a big part of that team. Uh, and then William Floyd. William Floyd, bar none, played for the 49ers, uh, won a Super Bowl with Steve Young, uh, Jerry Rice. Uh, he's a color commentary color commentator currently for the Florida State Criminals. <laughs> uh, and he won a national title with Bobby Bauer. So seeing greatness in high school like that, I think with me kind of inspired me and, and kind of like you lose some fear as well. Like, oh, these were football players, but I destroyed them on the basketball court. The sky's the limit. We also had Nicole Hazley, who won five uh, Olympic medals in wow. the Olympics as a swimmer. So you being around greatness at that high school, did that really set a foundation looking back, right? Looking back on your years, did that set a foundation for you, Tom? For sure. Uh, you know, Seattle is low-key a, a real hotbed for athletic talent. Right. Uh, you know, they've really taken over the NBA the last few years. And uh, growing up, not just at O'Day, but my high school was well-being in South Seattle where all those Rainier Beach legends like Jamal Crawford, Nate right. Robinson, uh, Doug Christie, like, you know, the fact that you understand very young that these professional athletes, all-star level athletes are just dudes that grew up down the block from you. Right. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it kind of levels the playing field and, and, and gets you ready for professional career sports. Um, you know, so many people put athletes on a pedestal and, um, you know, it, the, the earlier you realize that everybody's, you know, all celebrities are just the same, just like you, uh, the better off you're going to be in your career. Big time, too, because growing up in L.A., we also cleaned the house of um, Steve Majors, the $7 million man. So the whole thing <laughs> with celebrities, because he was drunk every time. I mean, he tipped me when I went in there, I would clean a chair. Oh, great job cleaning the chair and give me like 20 bucks. You know, and this is in the late 70s, early 80s. That was a lot of money to me as a kid. Uh, but seeing him drunk every day, the $7 million man <laughs> kind of takes that veneer. They put, you know, they put their pants on, whoever they are. The king, right? King just got crowned. He puts his pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. For so sure. From high school, where'd you go to college, Tom? Uh, I went to a small NAIA school in Montana called Carroll College. Okay. Uh, and uh, really enjoyed it out there. Uh, you know, my wife went to the same school, really loved Montana a lot. And, uh, you know, just had a, an interesting progression, but that's a hell of a change going from right. inner city Seattle to very, very small town, Montana. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good spot for me, but uh, quite the, uh, quite the adjustment. But this is very interesting to me because I am the, I'm the board of the Orange County Diversity Council. And people get diversity wrong. And let me know what you think with all the experience you've had in business and in the corporate world. Diversity is not just race, disability, gender. Oh, let's hire the highest qualified minority for XYZ. Diversity is more profound than that and more uh, nuanced, right? You have regional diversity. You have age diversity. 
right? And right there, you're talking about regional diversity, uh, rural versus urban, right? And also in the travels I've done, there's a big difference between a country accent and a Southern accent. <laughs> and there's different styles of country music, right? It's not just uh, old school Hank Williams Jr. There's pop country. There's a lot you have to, in, in companies in, that are diverse, truly diverse, end up making 46% free cash flow which is my favorite statistic in business. I want to hear about profit and free cash revenue, maybe, but free cash flow and profits, what's important in real diversity, really has been at the heart of business anyway, which is being pragmatic, right? And having an open mind to people from different parts of the country, different regions, different accents, and kind of digging deep, right? And not making knee-jerk reactions. And that's true diversity. What do you think, Tom? I agree 100%. And, you know, one thing I mentioned there is financial diversity. Uh, you know, going right. back to that high school experience, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a kid that was stable, not poor by any right. means, but, but never was around real money right. uh, to get to high school and, you know, go to school with like the Nordstrom family and wow. warehouse or executive kids and, and those kinds of things. And just to be able to see the diversity of how, lives change and, and how different struggles are at, at, a, at different financial levels is really interesting and a, and a good lesson. Right. And, and there is a struggle because that's what I learned uh, because we went from poor to middle class. And one thing I noticed about the super rich was how calm they were, but they still have problems and uh, get to the platinum rule, right? That people get wrong. People think about the golden rule doing to others. Uh, the way you would like to be done, but in business, it's more important doing to others the way they like to be done. What is it with them? <laughs> so with me, you know, I get a wealthy client. I'm like, okay, let's make money, blah, blah, blah. You know, Josh, calm down. What I need is tax mitigation. I want to pay as <laughs> amount of taxes as possible. I don't need to make another penny the whole rest of my life. But I didn't notice that. And let me know the differences you noticed. Being a middle-class kid to the super rich, for me, was how calm they were, how chill they were compared to kind of the hustle and bustle that I was going through. Yeah. I mean, it's a different, uh, it's a different level of stress. If you're stressing right. about making rent versus stressing about making your next million. Right. Uh, <laughs> so like, I, you know, no life is perfect. No life is easy, but yeah. uh, you know, it's a whole lot different when you got food on the table and you're not worried about, you know, those types of things. So uh, the advantages there, it's, it's eye-opening for a lot of us to, to get around wealth for the first time. And again, just like we were talking about athletes, you know, the earlier you're exposed to that diversity, um, the better off you're going to be in life. Absolutely. We'll get to that later because 80% of professional athletes end up broke. And we see that right before our eyes, you know, uh, the rigs of the world, right, who right now is in jail after being a first round draft pick just a couple of years ago and winning a national title with Alabama. So how did the beginning of your corporate uh, career, and thank you, Tom, this is fascinating to me, man. Sure, uh, yeah, no, I uh, I spent 30 years, or I have spent 30 years in video games and and um, and real money gaming. I started, uh, 
in uh, uh, my first job in video games was at Humongous Entertainment, which is kind of a legendary tiny little company that's known for cult classics of backyard sports, backyard baseball, backyard right. soccer, backyard football. Uh, and, you know, really had an incredible experience there was hired on as like number 22 as a, as you always been in marketing or what was your job title when you started? I, I was originally hired as actually a tester, a QA tester, managed their test group and then worked my way in. And, you know, as many startups are like everybody kind of does everything. So through the years I did, I had sales roles, I had PR roles, eventually uh, led product marketing. Uh, that's what I did most of the time. And then towards my end of my time there, I was doing outbound licensing and, um, and growing the company internationally, taking them uh, through Europe and all that stuff. So uh, the outbound licensing, we also had uh, junior adventure games, Pajama Sam, Putt-Putt, Freddy Fish, Spy Fox. And right. so licensing them out for toys and books and all those kinds of things. So really got a, a really, really nice rounded experience through kind of all aspects of business because it was such a small company. And, you know, like I said, I was employee 22. And when I left, I think there were about 400 uh, employees there. Wow, so really yeah. saw a lot of growth and, and just got incredible experience for, you know, my first six years in the business. So and, to, uh, to explain ahead. to people how phenomenal <laughs> what you just said, Hall of Fame stuff, 90% of businesses fail. And how long were you at the company, uh, Tom? I was there six years. You're there six years. The average length of an employee is 1.5 years. You were six years there. You grew and you got a company up there. In the, you made it the five to 10% of companies that succeed. And uh, unfortunately, 80% of companies in the United States have 50 employees or less. So the fact that you have 400 employees. <laughs> About eight times what the norm is, man. That's Hall of Fame business stuff that you're involved with. Huh? <laughs> yeah, no, it was uh, it was definitely exciting times, and you know that team was absolutely incredible. It was one of those really special things where, you know, the entire team was really motivated and everyone running in the same direction. Uh, we ended up selling to a company called uh, uh, GT Interactive, which became Infogrames, which became Atari. Wow. Uh, so, you know, Atari really good experience. You see it in movies. Sure. You know. Yeah. So I went on from there and um, yeah. moved on to Wizards of the Coast. Uh, was there, so Wizards of the Coast is probably best known for Magic the Gathering, Dungeons wow. and Dragons, um, you know, those types of games. Dungeons but I was there during... Wow the Pokemon trading card game, boom, where we went from $175 million a year to 750 in one year. Wow. Uh, absolutely incredible. We actually, we, we figured out at one point that if we printed dollar bills, $1 bills, instead of the cards themselves, we would have made more money printing the cards. <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, one pattern I'm noticing here is like... <clears throat> Football, yeah. well, you know, this guy has knack for the balls. Tom, you have a knack for Hall of Fame iconic brands, man. You know, Atari, yeah. Pokemon, Dungeons and Dragons, that stuff that as a person, layperson, wasn't involved with that. I had friends who were, and I knew what it was, even though I was on the periphery of it. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's it's a pretty cool company. Um, you know, I worked, uh, we had a sports line there, MLB Showdown, NFL okay. Showdown, NBA right. Showdown which were trading card games um, based on sports, super interesting. Uh, we did 
uh, I signed the very first license that uh, Joe Rawlings ever signed for Harry Potter. Wow. Um, so that was a super interesting experience uh, because we were before the movies. So we were deciding wow. we were the That's first ones to visualize. You're, you're, you're right before it takes off. And yeah, got, it's too many, too many examples. You have to have, have had a part in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were the first team to actually visualize what those Harry Potter characters looked like. Right. Um, you know, the first time we had to draw or paint those characters. So really, really interesting experience. And like I said, you know, between all the sports and Pokemon and D and D and, and uh, magic and all those things, just, a really wide variety of types of products and types of customers. Right. Uh, but the most interesting thing I think I took out of that was learning about rarity schemes and, you know, the hobby markets and, you know, retail distribution and all those types of things. Um, you know, just learned some really good, great lessons there and uh, had a good time before moving on to EA Sports. So I was oh, at EA that, Sports. That's for, kind of there, EA Sports. And what, what were you sure. doing at EA Sports? What was your role there? I was there for 13 years, uh, and at the end of it, uh, the last seven years, I was VP of global product, brand, and wow. athlete marketing across um, you know the entire sports line. So we had Madden, NCAA, NASCAR, Tiger Woods, man, uh, you know, uh, just everything, UFC, hockey, um, you know, all the products. Uh, you know, that was really, really an incredible experience. Um, you know, I started in NASCAR there and uh, launched the original NFL Street franchise. Um, so, you know, not just getting to the big time as far as brands are concerned and, and you know, working with Madden and NCAA and all that stuff, but really getting in deep with products that I didn't know anything about. So when I got hired, I didn't know anything about NASCAR at all. I'd never been to a race. I'd never watched a race. So you know, really learning how to go through that immersion phase of digging in and getting to know everybody in the sport and, you know, getting out. I used to travel to 15 races a year, uh, you know, coming in on Wednesday uh, at the race and not leaving until Monday. Uh, just really became an integral part of both NASCAR, the league and the teams and knowing all the broadcasters and, you know, working with the NBC team and Benny Parsons, right. uh, who was one of the primary broadcasters then, um, you know, that's, I really learned a lot about how to immerse yourself in something that you're not knowledgeable about and really dig in for learnings and get to the true essence of what makes a sport or a product or whatever. Great. Uh, and being able to kind of cook down, um, all of your offerings to this essential, uh, um, you know, uh, offering that you know is going to appeal to the target audience. So, two, um, two really great experience that, there too. Yeah. Two points that I see. Let me know what your thoughts are. In society, that I see flaws that people, young, especially young people, in my opinion, they come to me for help. My wife's a psychotherapist. She runs six clinics. She has employees. And we talk about these two points, uh, your dad, you know, working at Boeing and then your mom, uh, she was a nurse and then she learned how to do interior design. So when you finish college, what college did was, was teach you how to learn and how to do independent study. In this case, you learned NASCAR, you learned it, you know, kind of kind of as a profession you know to be able to be able to do that to do that 
And then uh, a great thing you did too with NASCAR was you didn't uh, judge the book by its cover. You immersed yourself first, you got direct evidence, and then you started making decisions. So you can speak to those two points. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key to everything. That's what marketing is, right? All marketers are storytellers. And you have to understand the story in a very, very intimate way. And you have to understand the, the audience in an intimate way in order to bring those things together. So product marketing, a lot of people don't really understand what product marketing is, but like I and my product marketing teams right. work with the development team to best educate them on what's going to appeal most to the target audience. So as a NASCAR fan, it's what do they love about the sport? How can we bring that to life differently? Um, and then ultimately, how do we talk about it? Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, that is a, uh, it's a, it's a learned skill that is a combination of um, not just, you know, research on the sport itself, but research on, you know, sales, competitive products, um, you know, looking at outside of the genre, the sports genre to see what would be interesting to bring into sports. So, right. you know, a new technology or, or uh, a new type of feature in a shooting game, like, okay, how do we, how can we apply that to sports? What would be interesting there? Um, and, uh, you know, really just doing a lot of research and, and, and leading those efforts, uh, again, to educate and inform the development team so that you know that the product they make is going to resonate with the fan base. Right, and, and then in your business life, this this skill, uh, you know, I still have to work on it, but it's one of the skills that's made me the most money. And one of the skills I see lacking uh, with the young people, and it's the ability to read people. And you can do that. I mean, because you went from Seattle, you had your experiences in the business world. You went to rural Montana. <laughs> when I think of Montana, I think about Phil Jackson and uh, Brett Musburger, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but you're you're good at reading people. What do you think is the key to that? Uh, listening, right? I mean, that's that's really what it's all about, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've always uh, been successful in the marketing realm is because I kind of experienced life from other people's shoes first. Right. Like you enter a negotiation or a new partnership with you know a new licensee like NASCAR or or. Uh, or whatever it is, um, the very first thing I do is learn what you know your partner organization wants to get out of this relationship. Right. What are you trying to accomplish? And then I can help you accomplish that through that. So one of the biggest wins in my career was I was uh, I was the first one uh, and only one I guess to uh, to negotiate a license with Augusta National Golf Club and the Masters. Wow, that's huge. Took me six years to negotiate wow. the deal. Because, wow. you know, they have pretension, they had uh, historically been very protective, right? They liked, they didn't like to share everything, you know, for years and decades, totally. And for decades, you know, the masters never showed the front nine. And the reason is because the golf club and the, and the leadership of the golf club believed that something should be reserved only for members and the patrons, as they call them, the fans that get to experience it. So they never showed the front nine. And, you know, that's, that's just an example of the level of kind of secrecy and prestige that they like to maintain. 
So when I met them, uh, I took over the Tiger Woods franchise in 2006. Wow. Uh, Tiger, Tiger Woods PGA Tour, I should say. Yeah. Um, and uh, I met them right away and said, you know, this is the ultimate goal is to get Augusta National in our, in our, in our game. And that was with uh, uh, Hootie Johnson. So that was three commissioners or a chairman ago. Wow. And, um, you know, he was interested. He would take the meetings consistently, but you could kind of tell it wasn't going to go anywhere right. uh, until, um, uh, until, um, oh man, now I'm forgetting a uh, uh, chairman's uh, name. Um, uh, the one that brought the Olympics to Atlanta. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to, spent a lot of time trying to remember it. And when he came in, he said, our goal is to grow the game of golf through the historic um, uh, uh, experience of Augusta National Golf Club. And so I knew right away when he came in and he said that, I'm like, I got it. Because if you want to get to youth, video games are the way to do it. If wow. you want to get international, video games are one of the easiest ways to do it. Uh, so it took us a couple of years uh, to, uh, uh, you know, kind of, come to an agreement that we would work together. And then obviously about a year to develop the course and, and all those things. And then we came time to launch and uh, we were moving the launch date of the Tiger Woods PGA Tour franchise to align with Augusta National and the Masters. And what happens, we were just about finished the product and ready to start uh, locking it down. And Tiger has his indiscretion. Right. And, uh, and the chairman and the club came in and said, listen, we have a contract and we'll obviously we're men of our word and would, would we'll honor that contract, but we need to let you know that, you know, we will be hesitant partners if you move forward with this product at this time. And, uh, yeah, well, after there's a lot of great insight you bring into, uh, what's going on with the PGA and the, the, the current, uh, struggles they're having now with the Saudi players coming in there and paying people off to start their own golf tour. So these folks are very judgmental, right? With the, the, what happened with the Tiger Woods and the Scripture, uh, their old school South, Southern tradition, Southern Baptist types, but also sort of like plantation owners, <laughs> right? If you were been to Savannah, I mean, great bacon and stuff like that. The Augusta, you know, and you know, you're coming from the West Coast, Seattle, even Montana, right? It, it's a different culture than what you experience. And we call, it's funny because on the, on the sports betting podcast, we call this the Pete Carroll rule. If you live in the past, you die in the past. Because <laughs> Pete Carroll's <laughs> not going to change, right? If you win, I would forever. Hey, I, I learned uh, the Tampa 2, it's not even a defense, it's a cover. The Tampa 2 defense. That's what we're going to run, and that's what we're always going to run. I learned it from Monty Kiffin, and I'm not changing. Fine. We're going to bet on the other under uh, uh, Coach Carroll. Uh, and, right, you, in a way, let me know if I'm wrong, you, you influence on change, on that if you're going to get the younger demographics, you're going to have to have a video game in there. These are different strategies. You kind of can't connect with that. Now, because you have inside information, really, are the challenges that the PGA having now is because of them living in the past and dying in the past a little bit, 
in a way they've lost contract with, you know, Phil Nicholson, Dustin Johnson to the world, which is a Florida Gator, Southern SEC guy. Uh, is that what's going on? What, what are your thoughts on that, Tom? Uh, well, you know, I'm not in the PGA Tour offices, um, and you know, those guys are. It's a great, great organization. They were always great partners to me. Right. Uh, I've worked with them um, both at EA Sports and at DraftKings, and I have a lot of respect for uh, uh, you know the current commissioner and 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 all those folks. But the world is changing, right? right. And you know, the globalization uh, of society affects sports as well, and golf is certainly a global sport, and so. Um, you know, any, anyone can open up a, a, a new golf league, right? And when right. you have the kind of money that, um, that Live Golf has, it's going to be very difficult to compete. You know, I think the previous commissioner, uh, Commissioner Fincham, um, you know, he, he always did a really, really good job of managing the golfers because, you know, golfers are not employees. They're independent contractors. They can go right. wherever they want. Right. And, um, you know, he kept threats, threats like this at bay by making sure that the competitors felt respected, heard, and, um, and, and kept them very, very engaged. Um, you know, but the world is changing and viewing habits change. Nobody's going to sit down and watch four, you know, five, six hour broadcasts of golf. So, you know, the PGA Tour, I think, has done a pretty good job of changing the way they present their content. And, you know, yes, you can tune into every minute of a tournament, but the vast majority of people are going to experience golf tournaments through highlights. And, you know, they've made that change, but, um, you know, that money came out of nowhere and it came much larger than, uh, um, than I think anyone really expected. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, you know, I don't have an opinion one way or the other of, you know, who I think is going to win, but, um, you know, I think it's probably overall, it's good for the world of golf to be challenged to change. And, you know, right. I always yeah, said from the beginning, the like, I always said from the beginning, golf needs to open up. Like we need to have, like, there are rivalries in golf and we, you know, because of the kind of gentleman, gentlewoman, uh, the approach of, of the game of golf they've buried a lot of the rivalries. They've buried a lot of the interest. They bury a lot of the access to the golfers themselves. Um, you know, the tiger Phil rivalry was legendary for years, but you know, people would kind of talk about it a little, but they never like neither one of them actually ever even acknowledged there was a rivalry. Right. And um, you know, I said from the beginning, you know, golf needs to mic up the caddies and the, and the golfers so that we can hear what they're talking about, how they're, different strategy right? at the restaurant when i had the restaurant i had some caddies come in and i would hear some fascinating stories some that you probably couldn't share on the podcast but a lot you could right just flat out entertainment you know yeah. insight yeah no i i've had some amazing caddy conversations for sure <laughs> uh but you know i think golf you know just they they miss the opportunity to surface those stories uh, because they want to keep it pristine and proper and right, and, right. and gentlemanly um, and you know, there's a new world coming. Uh, so, you know, lives shorter format of golf. Um, you know, the fact that there's no cuts, so it's more friendly to the golfers, the competitors right. themselves. Um, obviously the, the larger paydays are, are, are hugely attractive. The real thing that's going to determine this is, is, uh, 
if Liv can get sanctioned for World Golf Rankings. Uh, because if they get World Golf Tour, uh, excuse me, World Golf Points, um, uh, you know, that means now they can play in all the majors. Um, and without it, they can't play in the majors uh, other than Augusta. Augusta's an invitational. All the others are, are based on world ranking. Right. Um, that's a big, big deal if, uh, if, if Liv earns that right. So yeah, I think that's kind of the key block that we're looking for. The new world is emerging. Your Elon Musk, Peter Thiel's, your Saudi Prince world, they're kind of poking on the established order. Does that make sense? Totally. And, you know, it's like, you know, I, I, I have consulted people that, that looked at starting golf leagues and, you know, golf is a party sport. It's a gambling sport when right. you play, when you participate and it's the opposite at the tour. So right. people that look into things like night golf competitions, uh, you know, beer on the courses, cheerleaders, entertainment, not hush hush, you know, big, uh, uh, Ryder Cup like crowds that are going crazy. Like, we need some of that in in professional golf. So it's interesting. No, no, fascinating, fascinating. And before we get to your time with DraftKings, this has always fascinated me, and I got lucky that my wife went to a conference. Forget the guy's name. I'll have it in the episode notes. Anything that we have gaps in, like the name you forgot of uh, the guy before, I'll re-listen and put links in the uh, podcast notes episode notes so folks can do uh, their research. But this guy invented the stages of change, how you change from a psychological, psychotherapist standpoint, the stages of change. And statistically, 95% of people can't change. And you make a lot of money sports betting with that. Is this guy gonna change, you know? Is Jamin Winston gonna stop being impulsive and stop throwing interception, right? 95% of the time, the answer is no. Only 5% of people are either willing or capable of change, right? And I was in a meeting with this independently wealthy guy. You never would have thought it. He's a cattle racer from South Dakota. And it's over there, you in my head. And we got into this conversation, right, about change. And he's like, Josh, he just stopped my rattling, you know, stopped my rant and said, Josh, people only change when they have to. So we kind of talked about it before the podcast. How do you get somebody who's been, who's independently wealthy, grandkids are rich, you know, uh, to change, right? Because that's been part of your success in your career, being able to pitch these new technologies to super rich, super arrogant, and sometimes rightfully so, super brilliant people, but might be wrong in a specific point in a specific area. And you have to influence them to go in one direction. Data. <laughs> That's the answer. Uh, listen, you know, as, as a trader, um, data is everything. And, right. you know, everybody's got an opinion. And very few people, especially successful people, right. uh, will be convinced by opinions or, or, uh, or um, you know, just observation. Right. It takes data. And you have to show, you know, either where they're susceptible to, new competition or right. this new emerging market or um you know this new technology that's going to change how your business works like those are kind of hard data points that you have to get in order to convince anybody to make a change 
Um, and so that's why, you know, data marketing right now is, is, you know, such a powerful emerging, um, uh, business because right. technology is advantaging so quickly, so quickly that we're getting, um, more and more data points more and more often. And, you know, you have to be careful. One thing that I do warn marketers about is going strictly on data, like data can't make decisions for you. You, it needs to be inputs, and right. you know you need to line up, take I them for consideration, that. and then you take your gut. but it's going to become better coming from you because yeah, it's so, yeah. analytics, right? Matt Patricia comes in after uh, because I have a client. She is, she has a World Series ring with the San Luis Cardinals, and she uh, has a doctorate in math from MIT, and she works in the analytics department but she owns her own analytics consulting firm uh, for major league baseball teams but she will never take on an nfl client because she says because of purely the math there are just too many variables in football just like assistant coaches uh you know the refs uh you got 22 players on the field you have 22 backups there's just too many variables in finance right you eliminate variables and co-variables right to get to your answer. So there's too many variables. So Matt Patricia in analytics, now 70%, 52.5 is break even. I'm 70% always wagering against analytic teams, right? Because of that. And it's it's bared out, you know, the fruit bears out. So here comes Matt Patricia. He's a head coach of Detroit Lions. And they asked him, fourth and two and your left guard was injured. Why did you go for it? And why did you run on his side? Your injured guard on fourth and two. He's like, oh, because analytics told us to. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that is so dumb, Matt. It does not make the decision for you. It's a tool so you can use logic, right? That your left guard is hurt in order to make the decision and not make the decision for you. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I can't wait to get on to talk about Simulant Sports, my latest uh, venture, because we talk a lot about data and football data specifically uh, within that business. No, that's awesome. So you get to DraftKings. What did you do for DraftKings? Uh, I was the chief marketing officer at DraftKings, um, you know, launched all their first sports books, took them public um, and, uh, you know, had a had a great time there before retiring during the pandemic to uh, play IT manager for my kids being homeschooled and uh, and and do board work and so uh, you know the board congratulations work, though because in those years DraftKings blew up the time where you were chief marketing actor kind of set them up nicely for what's going on who who did you work for did you work for the two founders or I worked for DraftKings. Yeah, I, I, I was hired by Jason Robbins, the CEO, um, and, uh, you know, worked for an, under him most of my time. And then also oh, wow. awesome. under Matt. Yeah, Bayless. I was here on CNBC. Yeah. Uh, Jason's a great guy. Super, super smart. Like really right. one of the best analytic minds I've ever been around. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was quite the historic moment of, uh, you know, sports betting and passport being stricken down and, Knowing that sports right, was going to become legal, and, uh, Chris Christie and all that New Jersey, exactly. So yeah, we launched the first uh, sports book in New Jersey, and then Pennsylvania, and then wow. Indiana, and, you know, all those other places. So 
really interesting business. And, uh, uh, you know, it was fascinating. Like, I, I just wanted to be part of it. Uh, right. You know, I the, the analogy I always said is like, listen, we're at the end of prohibition and we're Budweiser. Like, how right. fun is this going to be? <laughs> <laughs> so before we get to your current venture coming out of the pandemic, what do you think about this always fascinated me, right? Because um, years ago, I, you know, when I was working through college, I, I was working for the people, if you know what I'm talking about, at a um, extra space center with a storage facility. <laughs> and, I, and I got to see kind of like the underground with the sports betting. And then when I lived two years in New York, went to Trump Tower uh, and uh, talk to the guy Trump had running the sports book at Trump, the illegal sports book underground sports book at Trump Tower, where the big guy placed bets, and you only have to give him the money, go up there, give the man the money. <laughs> but what if he lost, he wouldn't pay, right? Uh, Trump not paying, oh, shocker. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on, man, right? You got uh, Penn Asham, you know, Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn's worth $23 billion. He's grown Penn Am for the Sportsbook in Boston. He owns 40% of Penn National. It's connected, of course, to, to the people in New York, uh, you know, to my family's people. But now it's not being regulated, being taxed in between New Jersey, Pennsylvania. We're looking at a $3 billion with a B dollar, all right, valuation for as far as handle, right? And we had a great... Uh, podcast that man i learned a lot with graham honecker he's in the gifts department at butler university and he talked too which you're an expert on and if you could talk to this earn advertising value you're the, the biggest expert in this thing so i'm not fascinated by this because you look at usc ucla going to the big 10 can you explain to all of us really because you're the expert how do they come up with that number earn advertising value and what does that mean to the economy, right? A $3 billion uh, handle. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Is sports betting, right? And we'll end this question just for this part before we get to your new venture. Is sports betting a trillion dollar market around the world? Uh, nearly. Uh, today, it's a uh, sport, fantasy sports and sports betting combined to about $500 billion a year. Okay. It's the largest entertainment segment uh, in the world. Uh, video games is second at about 200 billion uh, wow. movies and TV combined for about 120 billion. Oof. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's a massive, massive market that the U S is frankly late to the party on. Right. Uh, we should have been collecting these tax dollars for years and years and years. 30 years um, People least. are doing it anyway. Like they're betting offshore. They're betting with their neighborhood bookie. Right. Um, you know, it was never really heavily prosecuted. Um, and even today, like the government doesn't, uh, isn't very aggressive of going after offshore books, uh, that continue to operate, uh, illegally in the U S and, Bitcoin you know, I think it's part of it too, Bitcoin and crypto for sure. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it's interesting as, as we get more and more States become legal, I think, I think I recently read it's about 50% of U S population now has legal uh, sports betting, but our access to it. Um, but you know, it's not until like year five or six of tax dollars that the government's going to realize like, 
okay, we're starting to plateau our tax dollars now. How are we going to grow this? Well, the way to grow it is to go shut down the illegal books right. uh, and, uh, and make sure that you get as much money through legal books as possible where it's taxed. So, um, you know, this market's going to continue to change. And, you know, people certainly having legal sports book is a much more trustworthy and acceptable um, uh, form of entertainment uh, than it has been in the past. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a massive business that's waiting to blow up. But the right. interesting thing about sports books, though, and, and this will transition to uh, yeah. win Sports. The interesting thing about sports book is there's only live sports content on like 40% of the time. Right. As a matter of fact, the NFL, uh, because they run so many games congruently on Sundays, the live NFL content is only available 4% of the year. Right. And, you know, what do you do with the other 96% of time? And that's where Simwin Sports, uh, my new venture, uh, comes in. So we run virtual sports leagues for the purpose of fueling uh, 24-7, 365 fantasy sports and sports betting opportunities. Um, so what that means is, as a fan now, you can come in, watch a, uh, uh, you know, a contest and experience that looks like a game of Madden or NBA 2K, um, but you actually uh, place real money games against it. So we run first party fantasy. Just to be clear, we are not a sports book, but we license our data to sports books. Got it. Uh, who then uh, set lines and, and we'll place bets there. So it's really, really interesting because now, you know, there's no off season, there's no pandemic shutdowns, there's no labor disputes. Uh, there's no, uh, uh, you know, LeBron doesn't decide he's going to take a couple nights off to rest. Right. Um, you know, you can you can sports back at, at three in the morning um, any time of year or across a multitude of sports. So we're starting with American football first and then launching uh, basketball and soccer. Uh, and then we have a whole slate um, that we haven't announced yet in the uh, in the more distant future. But we are in alpha right now. And, um, you know, we hope to be public uh, sometime in November and, and actually taking real money. So you'll be public in uh, November where people yeah. can invest. That That is awesome. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't. We will not be a public company in November. We will be open for play publicly ah, be in open November. That's what I mean. Yes. <laughs> so uh, after this question, I'm going to get into three things that it, 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 it links to swim to kind of wrap it around the head of people. So they kind of know what's going on. Uh, but before that, 90% of, you know, 90% of business consultants don't know anything of what they're talking about. So I call myself a concierge. And in the businesses that I've helped throughout the 25 years, this has been a constant, right? And now I always say the United States is $137 trillion market. And I learned this painfully in my restaurant. Every single client I've had the last 25 years, and I'm the hero, they all love me now. I've told them to charge triple what they're charging now. I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose money. No, it doesn't matter. Whoever will pay triple for it, <laughs> it's going to lead to bigger and better things, right? So uh, when you're looking at this new venture, the market is like Duke uh, Butler basketball is too billion dollars right the normal sports fan about 90 percent of the population that can't wrap their head around how much money there is out there 
It's almost like you 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 kind of sort of have the pulse on there, right? How do you talk to that and explain to the people that? And I'm big on abundance theory. There's enough money for everyone, right? I can't sell picks because of my securities license, but I have handicappers who do sell picks because I don't care. You know, I've had um, Tony McGee, a Hall of Fame guy, who's with Wager Talk. You know, and we, him, and I have the same philosophy. Hey, yeah, we're talking to the same people, but it doesn't matter. There's enough money for you, and there's a money for me, because this market is so just incredibly massive, and you kind of bring the globalization part of it too to, to that market. Yeah, this is a massive market. And, you know, the interesting thing about this business in particular is we don't compete with existing sports books. We don't compete right. with DraftKings. We don't compete with FanDuel. Um, you know, we augment those businesses because we're available 24 7, 365. Whereas, you know, every casino, like you walk into a sports book at the end of the night, the last game of the night ends, and everybody, like, you know, 20% of people make their way to the craps table and everybody right. else goes home. Right. Um, you know, with this type of an experience, you can keep that, you know, keep the bar moving and, and, uh, and keep taking wagers all night long. We also are a, uh, you know, we're a, a, a cloud driven experience, so we can stream to any connected device in the world um, where you can tune in and watch these contests. And obviously you can play uh, in in uh, in regulated territories only. Um, but you know, it's available anywhere in the world at any time you want. So it really changes the business dramatically again, because it's a growth agent. There's no one, I don't expect anyone to give up traditional fantasy or traditional sports betting to come do this. Um, but one thing that you see, you know, at DraftKings and in other fantasy experiences I've had is that more offerings mean more money. Like, we, we, anytime we had a new type of contest or anything, we would always build in some cannibalization, uh, assuming that players were going to give up some of their previous experience to go take on a new experience. And you had to be careful, bounce that. Not once, not ever, never, ever did the original experience uh, go down. It was never cannibalized. It was always in addition. So that's how you grow in real money gaming is by delivering more and more experiences uh, to more and more people. And, you know, Simwin Sports is really kind of kicking down the door as far as that's concerned uh, with the accessibility and, and entertainment value. That's awesome. So we'll close with this to kind of kind of crystallize it for people. If you can explain, right, uh, things, a couple of things that I've had a hard time explaining to people, A, what the metaverse is, what are NFTs, and then I have a final question. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy to explain to anybody that has ever played a video game because video game players understand rarity of weapons or skins or, or whatever. And, you know, that's really what NFTs unlock is ownership of a, uh, of a digital entity. So... Um, oh, where are scarce in a, in a uh, entity. Exactly. Like, like, you know, my kid insists on having... Uh, on having you know the latest skins in Fortnite, and now with NFT and and, and uh, blockchain gaming, um, you know gamers can actually own an asset in that world that they can then resell and profit from. So that's what makes our business so interesting. Is you know we are primarily a sports content and fantasy sports company, but the teams are NFTs, the players are NFTs, and each one of these NFTs 
uh, presents a unique business opportunity for those that purchase them. So and what is uh, the metaverse? You, know, you would say, how would you define the metaverse? Uh, well, different companies are defining it differently. Okay. Um, I think the, the generally accepted view of a metaverse is, uh, you know, kind of like second life, right? right? You have an avatar, you're walking around this digital world, you can experience, um, diff meet different people and, and experience different things in it. The way we define a metaverse, and we are a metaverse because we actually mimic and mirror all the things that go into professional sports as far as a business and revenue opportunities. So our team owners, for instance, um, you know, we're selling these teams for multi-million dollars and to very famous owners like Magic Johnson, Jerry Rice, Marshall Falk, LaMelo Ball, uh, Penny Hardaway, um, uh, you know, Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys, uh, Dr. Jen Welter is the first woman to coach in the NFL. Um, all these people have purchased teams. And the reason that they're commanding multi-million dollar price tags is because team owners actually participate in the revenue of the league in the same way that you do with the NFL, the NBA, MLB, et cetera. So, you know, when you buy a team, you automatically participate in kind of the passive streams that come from the league, your, your TV uh, broadcast and streaming rights deals, um, your, you know, official partner sponsors, right? Your official right, right. beer, official soda, pizza, whatever. Yeah. Um, these owners participate in our NFT market place and they get a percentage of all the secondary transactions on those on those marketplaces but then they also have active income streams just like the nfl mlb etc in that they uh, they uh, own about 75 percent of their advertising um, inventory in their stadiums and our environments our worlds our games are built for in-game advertising so um you know that's having jumbotron capability and all the ribbon boards and jersey patches and stadium, um, stadium naming rights and right. you know all these things that exist in the real world exist here in the SimWin ecosystem as well. And then from the player standpoint, uh, the players go for an average of $500 a piece. But when you purchase the rights to a player, we call that person, when you make this purchase, you're a player agent. Right. Um, and uh, the agent... Um, you know, as soon as your player is drafted, you automatically collect a weekly salary from their team. Wow. And that salary can be cashed out at any time for real world money. Wow. Obviously, you make more the more uh, effective and, and, uh, and better your player is. Um, your player can sign sponsorship deals uh, with, uh, with advertisers. Um, your player, the more popular your player is in fantasy drafting, the more your player is drafted, the more the larger cut of the fantasy revenue they get as as the uh, as the player agent as well, which is kind of funny because you know I've worked with athletes my whole life and right. you talk to most professional athletes about fantasy sports and they're like, man, I don't give a shit about that stuff. I, it doesn't <laughs> affect my life. I don't make any money from it. Right, right. And you know I just hear people bitching that I didn't perform enough or whatever. Well, now it does affect your life. You do get paid more. Right. The, the more popular you are. So that's why we consider ourselves a metaverse is because we mirror and mimic um, the business of professional sports. And we do it in a way that uh, both fans and celebrities can participate in really interesting ways. No, that's awesome. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. And we get a crystal clear picture of that. Uh, we're really good friends with Chance Nolan, starting quarterback at Oregon State. So we're looking at maybe NFT through through you guys. And we'll close with this. Uh, how's Magic Johnson like? 
and you've been around athletes your whole life. Which is your favorite athlete uh, that you've been around? Listen, Magic's amazing. Like, Magic changed the game. He's the original athlete slash business person, right? Like, right. he taught them all how to do it. Without Magic, you know, Tiger, LeBron, um, uh, Very you know, these guys are not becoming billionaires. Wow. Uh, that's because he told people. Because like, 70% of athletes end up broke. And you're saying that Magic had an integral part in helping those guys yeah I, I mean he he showed everybody the blueprint like you right. know i mentioned that Lamelo ball owns a team with us like right. these young cats like Lamelo, 21 22 years old know that the second they hit the league they got to find business opportunities so Lamelo like has his own sports drink and right. um you know is interested in his own video games and like you know all this kind of stuff they all learned it from magic right um and so like i love working with magic I, you know i've worked with hundreds and hundreds of athletes through the years um, and I have lots of favorites, but, uh, you know, magic is definitely, um, you know, it's, it's pretty special to get to work with him. And from your viewpoint, uh, why do 70% of athletes end up broke or in jail, like Riggs, the guy from Alabama? Uh, I think, you know, it's, the leagues are getting better and better and better. Um, you know, the vast majority of professional athletes didn't grow up with wealth. Right. And so they don't know the value of a million bucks, 10 million right. bucks, a hundred million bucks. And so, you know, growing up, I thought a million dollars was enough to survive on for an entire lifetime. And, right. and, and it never was right. No. Like not at a, not at a, a level that you would uh, uh, want to, if you were a millionaire. Right. Right. So these kids come into this, you know, incredible amount of wealth, certainly respected from where they came from. And they don't understand the value of a million bucks. They don't, if you're buying hundred thousand dollar cars, you know, every couple months, right. Yeah. A million dollars is going to be gone very fast. They also don't understand taxes, right? A million bucks is, is, is 600,000. It's not a million. (laughs) So, um, you know, young kids get drafted and they're just like, Oh, I have all the money I'll ever need now. I'll never have to work again. And that mentality is going to sink. Yeah. So. Uh, understanding scale of economy and and how far a dollar will and won't go is uh, is absolutely critical. Right now we teach that, and uh, I have a pin <laughs> because that was bothering me too. I have a pin exactly what value is is an equation, right? Psychological factors plus functional factors divided by time and money that equals value because the same way different companies are defining metaverse. Uh, differently value gets perverted and what it what value is and then when you beat it down exactly what value is to a particular individual in a particular time period right for sure um and you know that's a that's a tough lesson for anyone to live uh to learn um but you know you hit the nail on the head like you've got to understand economics going into that no awesome man what an awesome time man we gave people a lot of Really great information, and uh, we'll definitely get involved in your company moving forward and seeing the next steps, man. Final words, Tom. Uh, just can't wait to show off Simwin Sports. Go to simwinsports.com is where you'll be able to eventually view the product and place your fantasy sports picks. Um, you know, we'll have contests 24-7, 365, uh, lots of sports coming, but uh, you know, we're just excited to get football off the ground in November and and uh, and get out there and, um, you know, check out our NFT players when, when those go on sale as well.
Yeah, and we'll have links everywhere. We'll have links in the episode notes. We'll have links where we tweet things out. Tom will retweet it. Uh, and we'll, man, it's very exciting time. And really, it's a dual world because getting involved with uh, Tom's company and signing up and going the whole nine yards, really, it's going to help you keep current with technology and what's going on with the world and what's going on in the business world, right? Because in life, you never stop learning because life never stops teaching. So we always say you don't have to give Action Sports 300 bucks a month. You can get free information from us, learning business and financial concepts, not just for wagers, but to mitigate through life. And giving is not philanthropy or religion, it's business. When you give one, you always get 10 back, right? And uh, the queen died and her biggest moment was with Winston Churchill when she did not leave when London was being blitzkrieg by the Nazis. And Winston Churchill said, you make a living from your labor, but you make a life from what you give. Thank you for listening to the ESBC Podcast Network. That's why this fuck don't cost $800, and that costs $200. And I don't know what that costs, I'm just shaking the word. That's why.